Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Previously on Truth and Justice. Christopher tells Bobby that his daddy had whipped him and that he was running away. According to Jamie, Stevie's stepdad Terry yelled, You boys get back down here. They ignored his order to return home and sped off down the street. Come on, we gotta go. Hurry up. Come on. What do we do with the bikes? Just leave them there. It's good. Come on. Across the pipe? Yeah, sure, whatever. We just gotta go. They'll never find us in there. Come on. the three eight-year-old boys were discovered missing on May 5th of 1993 was as follows. Stevie Branch was supposed to be home before 5 p.m. His failure to return was the first indication to any of the parents that something may be wrong. The last parent to realize there was a problem was Dana Moore. Michael was told to be home when the streetlights came on. On May 5th, civil twilight occurred at 8.17 p.m., By that time, she too had realized that Michael was missing. In between these two, the second boy to be discovered missing was Christopher Byers. When Chris's dad returned home from picking Ryan up from the courthouse at 6.20, Christopher was nowhere to be found. While Mark and Melissa Byers were the second set of parents to realize something may be wrong, Christopher had disappeared over an hour after Stevie Branch missed his curfew, Mark Byers was the first of all the parents to begin searching and to notify police. While the opinions regarding the outcome of the notorious West Memphis 3 case vary widely, there's one point that most people who have studied the case can agree on. The West Memphis Police Department botched this investigation from the very beginning. To begin with, many fault the department for the amount of time that it took for them to first take the disappearances seriously, and secondly, to deploy available resources for what should have been an all-hands search effort. Stevie's mother, Pam Hobbs, once said that she will never forgive the West Memphis Police Department for delaying the search for her son. In my opinion, the worst mistake made by the West Memphis Police Department is the fact that they never spent any amount of time or effort interviewing the families of the three missing boys. Terry Hobbs was never interviewed by police in 1993. 
and we have very limited police interactions with his wife Pam, Dana Moore, and Melissa Byers. We have no record of Todd Moore, Michael's father, ever being interviewed. However, it's important to note that Mr. Moore was nowhere near the area when the boys went missing. Todd was a truck driver and was on the road at the time. He didn't return until the next morning. In cases such as this one, it is critically important to gather as much information as possible from the immediate family members. They are the keys to understanding a missing child's last movements and to assess victimology and risk factors. But in this case, the family members seem to be off limits to the investigators. That is, other than Christopher's father, Mark Byers. Mark had more interactions with the police than any of the other family members. These interactions, however, were not due to police pressuring buyers. In fact, the exact opposite is true. They were due to the simple fact that he refused to allow the authorities to ignore his missing child. I called the West Memphis Police Department and search and rescue numerous times. Mm -hmm. And then I found out from a Masonic Lodge brother that on that Wednesday night, they were having a search and rescue meeting. All the search and rescue men were at the sheriff's department in Marion, and I'm talking to Denver Reed, who was over it, Mm -hmm. and he said, you call the the city police back, that's their deal, since it happened in town, and if you hadn't found them in the morning, call me back. I called him back the next morning at 7 o'clock, and the West Memphis PD didn't start really looking till about 8.15. They were just driving the streets. Well, they just were kind of talking about, you hear there's some boys missing from last night? Right. They're really, then when Gitchell started getting pictures, they met down at a little quick shop on uh, 7th Street, started getting flyers. As we review the timeline of the search for Christopher, Stevie, and Michael, Understand that the majority of this information comes from Mark Byers, both through interview transcripts as well as my own conversations with Mark. Due to his insistence that the police amplify their search on the night the boys went missing, he is the best source of information on the topic. At 5 p.m., Pam and Terry Hobbs realized that Stevie was missing. Terry dropped Pam off at work, and then presumably he began looking for Stevie. We don't have an accurate account of Terry's movements on that afternoon. This is mostly due to the fact that the first time he was ever interviewed by police was 14 years after the fact in 2007. At this point, all I can say on the subject of Hobbs' movements is that they are unclear. According to a statement given to police by Mark Byers in 1993, Dana Moore told Mark that Hobbs had stopped by her house at some point in the afternoon looking for Stevie. This, of course, is double hearsay, but for what it's worth, that's what's in Byers' statement. As mentioned earlier, Dana Moore really didn't become concerned until about 8 p.m., and that's for the simple reason that Michael wasn't due home until around that time. Mark Byers, on the other hand, wasted no time raising the alarm for Christopher. He was supposed to come straight home from school, Brian straight home from school. I had an MRI at Baptist Hospital that morning. I was waiting on him. Ryan got there on time. He had to be in court like at 3.30. Well, we waited at home till 3.35, 3.40, and I said, I'm going to run you up to court. I don't know where Christopher is. I had been looking across the street, mm-hmm. just catty-cornered houses, 
I even gone up to the playground to see if he jumped on some playground equipment there. I had to get Ryan to court. Right. I took Ryan to court. I stayed in court till I came back home. I left court. And I went straight to pick Melissa up, came straight home, which she just worked right over the bridge. Okay. And about 10 after 5, I'm headed back up to court on 14th, going towards Broadway, and in the middle of the streets, Christopher laying on a skateboard, headed down towards Michael's house. Mm -hmm. I picked him up, brought him home. We had our discussion, me, him, and his mom. He took his punishment. I told him to stay right there and clean up the driveway. I'm going to pick Ryan up from court, and we're going to Shoney's. Mm -hmm. And that's the last When Mark returned home from picking up Chris, he knew immediately that something was terribly wrong. did not come home directly after school, because I was there, and Ryan was there, till like 20 minutes to 4. The next time I saw him, like I said, was about 5.15, 5.20, when I picked him up off the yard. And when I left to go back to court to get Ryan, it was about 10 to 6. I left him there with Melissa. She got a phone call, and she was right there in the kitchen with him. And he walked out. He was going to go upstairs and pout. Mm -hmm. And I said, no, come here. You're going to clean up the driveway right here. Pick these leaves and paper up. It was just kids walking through the yard. Right. paper out in the yard. I said, pick this up and we'll be right back home. We're going to Shoney's Deep. I came back home. He wasn't there. The search started. As soon as Mark realized that Christopher wasn't home, he, Ryan, and Melissa all piled into the family car and began searching the streets. The search began between 6 and 6.30. At around 7 p.m., the Byers clan came across a police officer in the parking lot of a Big Star gas station in the southeast corner of the neighborhood. Mark rolled his window down and told the officer that his son was missing and they needed help finding him. The officer asks how long Chris had been gone, and Mark tells him that it's been about an hour. Rather than making a report and helping to search, the cop tells Byers to wait another hour. He says if Christopher hasn't been found by 8 p.m., then go ahead and call the station. This interaction is probably the most tragic of any other in this case. At 7 p.m., the boys were known to have still been alive. Chris Wall saw them on their bikes cruising north on Macaulay Street at almost this exact time. Had the officer taken the report seriously, or even announced on his radio for any available units to report to the neighborhood to help search, Christopher Byers, Michael Moore, and Stevie Branch likely today would be 32-year-old men, three men who none of you would have ever heard of. Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting? Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. I believe and most agree that Michael, Stevie, and Christopher were murdered during the one-hour window between 7 and 8 p.m., the exact period of time when the Big Star parking lot officer told Mark Byers to wait before calling. At 7 p.m., there was still a chance to intervene and save the boys' lives. I get Melissa... And Melissa and Ryan and I start doing the neighborhood, talking to police in two different places, going every place I could think of to look. Then we went to the gas station up on 7th Street, talked to the cashier there, talked to a police officer up on Broadway, talked to another gas station attendant that had a police officer in it, different neighbors that we'd seen outside. Mm-hmm. I got back home. Now, this is from like 6.15, 6.20 when I got back with Ryan till right at 8 o'clock. I said, forget this. I'm calling the cops. Mm-hmm. I called the West Memphis PD. They dispatched Regina Meek. And on her report, when she filled it out, the time arrival is 8.10. As Officer Regina Meeks was clearing the scene, we have our first first-hand account of Terry Hobbs' search efforts that evening. We described what Christopher was wearing. Exact last time we'd seen him. She leaves to go out when Dana Moore walks across the street. Then Dana says, y'all looking for Christopher? We're like, yeah. Well, I see a vehicle pulled up on the street corner there by the pine trees. I didn't know who it was. Dana and me tell Regina that she saw Stevie, Christopher, and Michael all together heading down 14th earlier, and she sent Dawn after him. Regina Meeks gets in her car and leaves. When she leaves, he up walks this guy, introduce, I'm Terry Hobbs. I'm like, okay, nice to meet you. Who are you? I'm Stevie's stepdaddy. At this point, is around 8.30 p.m. It's been about an hour and a half since anyone has seen the boys, and over two hours since any of the parents had seen them. Prior to this encounter with Terry and Dana, Mark believed that Chris was wandering the streets alone. We re- that's the first time I realized there were three boys together. Okay. Because here Terry's like, I'm Stevie's stepdaddy. I've been looking for Stevie. Dana's like, yeah, we've been looking for Stevie and Michael. And Christopher's in with them too because I saw them all three. And that's when I said, okay, they got to be around here somewhere. All three of them are together. Right. So I felt a little better. It just wasn't Christopher by himself somewhere. So prior to that, you didn't even know he was with Michael. I didn't know, I didn't know he was with anybody. You were just looking for Christopher, right? And when I found him on the skateboard, I didn't even know he had been down there yet. Mm-hmm. That was the first time since he left to go to school that I had seen him on May fifth. Was when I found him on the skateboard. At this point, the parents separate again. Terry Hobbs heads to Catfish Island to pick Pam up from work. She was scheduled to get off at nine. There are a few different versions of the events floating around from this pickup. The earliest, and I believe likely to be the most accurate, is that Terry pulled into the parking lot 
and immediately got out of the car and went to a payphone. He reports that he used the phone to call police and report Stevie missing, although I have not been able to find any verification of this report. This is Terry Hobbs' recollection of the events from his 2007 police interview. When did you see Pam again? When I picked her up from work. Okay, you remember about what time that was? It was right at 9 o'clock. Okay, and when you went to pick her up, who I was with you? Amanda. Just Amanda? Okay, okay I had picked her up. Yeah, because I had her with me. Uh, I picked Pam When you met Pam uh, at, at her job, what was the first thing y'all talked about? Pam, like <coughs> Every other night, come out of the, uh, the building with two pieces of candy, one for me and one for Steve. She came out that night with two pieces of candy, and she asked for Stevie. And I said, Pam, we haven't been finding him yet. And she says, he's dead. And I said, Pam, don't say that, because who would think that? I was getting nervous a little bit before I picked Pam up because it started getting dark. And when your kids is out there after dark, as a parent, you know, you get them things. The first thing Pam said was, he's dead. And I said, don't say that. He is. I said, how do I you say that? You know, I don't know why she said that, but she said that. Do you know who uh, who was the first family or the first ones to call the police on this? I know when we was at the Dana's house when I first met Mark, we said right then we was going to call the police. But I thought I called them before that. And I can't remember, but it seemed like I did. But I ain't going to sit here and say that. I'm, I'm just... Did you have a home phone at that time? Would you have called from your home or? No, or pay phone. Pay phone? Yeah. Did you have a working home phone at that time? Sure. Did you? Okay. Um, I might have even called from there because I don't, I don't remember that. But I remember uh, when I was at the Moore's house and I met Mark. I remember telling Dana because they both said this one called police. And I told one of us, you know, tell them Stevie ain't here too. So I think I didn't call, I didn't make that call at the end, but I mentioned that today. Meanwhile, back in the neighborhood, Mark Byers and Ryan began searching the Robin Hood Woods area on foot. Terry pulled up in a vehicle, and that's the first time I saw David Jacoby. Mm-hmm. A long-haired guy, big field beard. He just said, this is a friend of mine, David. I'm like, okay. He said, and he asked me where you've been looking. I said, well, just kind of around the neighborhood, you know, riding around the neighborhood here. And I said, I'm getting ready to head back down this street towards Mayfair Apartments and look down there. He said, I've already been looking down there. There's no sense going down there. So I took off. Was back. he referring to by the apartments or was he referring to the woods? Well, he was just, I said, I'm going towards Mayfair. Okay. Which would have been going down and dead end. And right by the I pipe. would have ended up where the pipe was. Right. And probably would have eventually found my way over there. Mm-hmm. But he said, I've already, I just said Mayfair. He said, I've already looked down there. 
They're not around Mayfair. So I headed the other direction. He took off away from me. I got back. Robert Fountain didn't have a light. When I got back, a car pulled up. It's Officer Moore. He has a flashlight, and I start looking. Then about 11.30, I'm on the corner at Barton and 14th in my yard, and uh, it was either red and white or blue and white, but it was a two-tone extended cab Ford pickup with chrome on it. It was Jackie Hicks Sr., Mm. First time I ever met him. It was Jackie driving, Jacoby in the middle, Terry riding shotgun. And me and Mr. Hicks talked about where we were going to be looking. And he told me he was going to go by the police station. I told him I'd call the sheriff's department a couple times already. I couldn't get anybody to help. That was the first time I ever met Pam's daddy. At this point, several people from the neighborhood were out helping with the search. Mark was wearing shorts and flip-flops, so at some point he ran back home to change and look for a flashlight. He eventually connected with a West Memphis patrolman, Officer Moore, who began looking with Mark with his flashlight. While Mark and Officer Moore were searching the center portion of Robin Hood Woods, and Terry Hobbs, David Jacoby, and Jackie Hicks, Pam's father, were searching over by the west end of the woods near the pipe bridge, Christopher's brother Ryan was searching the east side of the woods with some friends. uh, I walked... I walked around in the woods looking for him. I was with my friend, Britt Smith. Britt's uh, sister was help looking, and uh, her boyfriend, Richie Masters, was looking, and uh, his cousin, Robbie, I don't know, guys last name. Mark Byers and Officer Moore continued searching until shift changed. We were going to eat with a state trooper lived right across the street. Black gentleman, while I run across there, Talked to his little boy. He said, no, I ain't seen him. So I came back in, got Melissa and Ryan. I said, let's go around this Mexican family. There was a boy named Carlos, who was uh, Ryan's best buddy. There were four or five boys stair step. We drove around behind that. That was in our neighborhood. And we went down 14th to Brett Smith. That's Ryan's good friend. He hung out down there South and north on 14th. That would have been going north on 14th towards Goodwin. Okay. Because south is toward Broadway. And Brent Smith lived on the same side of 14th we did towards Goodwin, about six, seven houses down. And that's when we told Richie Masters, who was Brent Smith's sister's boyfriend, and he went in this, got in the search later on that night, too. When I was there with a police officer who came up, Officer Moore had the flashlight. And we heard something, and it sounded like a a car backfire, actually. But then we heard a loud splash in 8 Mile Bio, and the police officer and I heard that. Then we heard Ryan and Brent Smith hollering, and they come running towards us. Daddy, there was a gunshot. There was a gunshot. And we're like, we heard that. Well, the police officer's like, it's getting time for my shift to change. I got to do reports. You know, there'll be another police mm-hmm. officer out here. About what time was that? Now we're in like 10, 10 because his mm-hmm. shift changed at 11. Mark sent Ryan home to bed around this time. He, along with Terry Hobbs, Jackie Hicks, and a few other locals continued the search until well after midnight. Eventually, everyone retreated to their homes, although no one was able to sleep that night. Most parents, myself included, have at one time or another experienced the gut-wrenching fear of losing their child. If even for a brief moment, 
the empty feeling in your core, the panic, the terror of not knowing where your child is, is a sensation that only a parent can understand. Falling asleep without knowing that your child is safe, for any parent, would be impossible. One question that remains today is whether or not anyone searched the small patch of woods to the north of the pipe that night. We know that Christopher's brother Ryan did cross the pipe with some of his friends while searching. However, their journey to the other side was short-lived. They hadn't made it more than a few yards into the north woods when they heard something rustling in the bushes and quickly retreated back across the pipe. Unlike the Robin Hood woods on the south side, the Turtle Hill area was not a place where children played. It was dark, scary, and its proximity to the Blue Beacon truck wash, a truck stop, and Interstate 55 all served as red flags to stay out of the area. Throughout the years, there have been statements made by Terry Hobbs that he and friend David Jacoby spent a lot of time searching these woods that night. But Mark Byers disagrees. The way these woods have been depicted in movies like The Devil's Knot have caused many people to picture a large, vast, and deep forest. But in reality, the entire patch of forest is less than the size of a football field. The woods are bordered on the south by the 10-mile bayou and to the north by Interstate 55. The Blue Beacon borders the west side and the east side of the woods are boxed in by a wheat field. The area is much less a forest and can be better described as a small patch of hardwoods. The woods lie only about 50 feet from the backyards of homes on Wecat Street and about the same from the interstate and less than that from the Blue Beacon. Mark Byers says that he never went into the woods, but was near them most of the night. He even drove around to the truck wash at one point and called out for the boys into the woods. According to Mark, he never saw another person in the patch of trees, he never saw a flashlight, and never heard a voice. We do know for a fact that none of the West Memphis police officers ever crossed the pipe that night. The only one who ever came close was Regina Meek. Um, I went, when I went down the hill to the pipe, of course the weeds were extremely high, Mosquitoes were tremendous. I was breathing in mosquitoes. It was so bad. And I decided at that time that three eight-year-old boys would not be staying in the woods with mosquitoes that bad. And I turned around, went back to my vehicle, and uh, decided to start checking buildings and other areas. I have personally stood in that exact spot, after dark, at the pipe. And I can tell you from my own personal experience that tarrying in that location for more than a minute or two will drive a person insane. The mosquitoes become so thick that even taking a breath becomes dangerous. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Todd Moore returned home from his trucking job early in the morning on May 6th. He quickly connected with Mark Byers, and they began searching again. 
Mark called the police and the search and rescue team one more time, and around 7.30 a.m., the West Memphis Police Department held a morning briefing. At the briefing, Inspector Gary Gitchell ordered all available units to participate in the search for Michael, Stevie, and Christopher. And by mid-morning, even the Crittenden County Sheriff's Department joined in on the search. Units were dispatched to search abandoned homes, wooded areas, open fields, and began going door-to-door. Mark Byers even made a call to the local TV stations, hoping to help get the word out to find his son. At some point, a team of searchers formed in the small patch of woods to the north of the 10-mile bayou. This is the area that I've described as the Turtle Hill Woods. The scene has been described as dozens of officers walking the woods shoulder to shoulder, back and forth and back and forth. After several passes through the woods, there were still no clues, no sign of the three eight-year-old boys. Around noon, a police helicopter was dispatched to assist in the search. The helicopter took aerial photos of the entire neighborhood, including the Robin Hood Woods and Turtle Hill. There was still no sign of the boys. Not so much as even a clue. No bicycles, no articles of clothing, nothing. The only thing investigators had to work from was the multiple witness reports that said they saw the boys near the woods close to the bayou. So they continued searching. Meanwhile, family members went to Weaver Elementary to see if the boys had shown up at school. Still, no sign of them. At this point in the day, with the boys missing for nearly 18 hours, hopes of finding them alive was starting to fade. Around 1 p.m., the dead-end street near the Mayfair Apartments began to buzz with police and media. Then around noontime, helicopters came over. We're still waiting, nothing school, still looking. And then we heard they'd put a boat in the bow, we're going to drag it. So myself and Todd Moore went over, drove over in his truck to the pipe. Uh-huh. And while we're sitting there, I crossed the pipe. That's the first time I ever went across the pipe. Mm-hmm. Saw something kind of in the brush line under the canopy, and I thought, what's that? I walked to it. It was a kind of a brownish coat. Had a big razor in one pocket, spider webs. I could tell I'd been there a long time. Brought it back over the pipe. Todd said, hey, I just heard they found something around Mayfair. So, boom, me and him took off, drove around to Mayfair. They're stretching the crime scene tape out. Um, we had just left the area, and as soon as we left the area, he took me home. He went home. Uh-huh. Then maybe 10 minutes later, he came over and knocked on the door said, Hey, the, I heard on my CB radio, they're calling, you know, the, they're calling people over by Mayfair Apartments. Okay. So he drove me around there. That's when they were stretching the crime scene tape. About 200 feet from that dead-end street crossed the pipe ridge and slightly to the east, searchers finally came across a sign that the boys may have been in the area. Detectives Brian Ridge and Mike Allen were walking along the banks of a drainage ditch that ran through the Turtle Hill Woods. The ditch contained a muddy creek that fed into the 10-mile bayou. Searchers had walked past this creek dozens of times throughout the day and hadn't seen any sign of the boys. In fact, they were just moments away from abandoning that particular area of the woods. It had seemed that they had covered every single inch of the area and were ready to confidently say that the boys were not in there. 
At this point, there were even talks of dragging the bayou in search of the boys. Both the bayou and the drainage ditch were completely opaque at the time. If you can imagine chocolate milk mixed with mud, that's what the water looked like on that day. It was impossible to see anything more than an inch under the water's surface. At around 1.15 p.m., while Detectives Ridge and Allen were making their final walk along the ditch bank, Detective Allen spotted something. I observed what appeared to be two small tennis shoes floating uh, in, the, in the creek. I went, uh, we were on top of, an, a top of a bank there, the, I would say, 10, 15 foot down to the, where the creek was, uh, I went to an area where I felt I could cross, uh, which I, I, I crossed and went around uh, to the area where these tennis shoes were in, in the water. My intentions were to reach, get into the water and reach for the tennis shoe, at which time uh, when I got into the water, I, I felt a felt an object in the water, uh, I raised my right foot up and the body floated to the surface of the water. Uh, me and Pam's riding around, we'd go get something to eat and we really couldn't eat. Uh, we'd go somewhere and we hear somebody say they found three boys and they tell us it's on that road by the apartments over there. Mm-hmm. And so we fly back over there, me and Pam, but we get back over there and we see the crime scene tape up there and we don't know what's going on, but there's a lot of people there. We park our vehicle, we get out, we start running up to the tape and Pam faints. And help her get back to the car. And I go up to the I go up to the crime scene table. Gary Gidger standing there. I pass Pam's husband, ex-husband. He said they won't let you pass the table. And I said something to him kept on walking. I get up there and Gary Kitch will stand there and ask him, I says, maybe found something, I didn't know Gary. And I asked him, have y'all, what, what'd you find? He said, three boys. He said, he said, I think it's a homicide, or it looks like a homicide, something like that. And I asked him, I said, what? He said, it looked like they'd been murdered.
Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Our executive producer is Mike Bussing, who produced and edited this episode, and Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. Season 5 logo art was created by Shane Yoder, and our website has been designed, created, managed, and maintained by Chris Brinkley and Katie Ross. Thank you to our transcription team, Sarah Mueller, Britta Bliss, Anna Dindorf, and Stephanie McConnell. Please take the time to send us your thoughts, theories, ideas, and comments, either to our email address, theories at truthandjusticepod.com, or through our Facebook page, Truth and Justice with Bob Ruff, or through our Twitter feed, at truthjusticepod. You can also join in the discussion on Facebook on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page, or if you have any information about the case or would like to send us a theory, question, or comment, you can always call our voicemail tip line at 269-224-2833. That's 269-224-2833. Make sure you get your thoughts in before this Wednesday before we record this week's Friday follow-up episode using any one of the methods just mentioned. However you do it, Stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.